Good morning, everybody. I am Clay Wildman. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. Uh, if you are here with us for the first time, uh, I, am, uh, I am an elder but not a pastor. I have a day job like most of you this week. Uh, I was out, uh, out wandering the earth uh, in, uh, in pursuit of, of capitalism. So, uh, <laughs> glad, glad to be here with you this morning. Very excited about the topic. I will say I noticed a couple of things while I was here. I noticed some parents turning around and looking, and their like, heads are cocked a little bit. Debbie and I normally teach 4th, 5th, and 6th grade at this hour. Uh, so if you have a 4th, 5th, or 6th grader, let's hope there's somebody in the room. All right? <laughs> Pray now that things will work out. I'm sure there is. Uh, the topic this morning, the weary world rejoices. This, uh, this is part of our Advent series. And, uh, and, and Rick uh, preached the original sermon, the initial sermon on, on hope. Uh, and, and then Jordan last week did a fantastic job in, in talking about peace, peace with God uh, between man and, man and God. But in this, in this series title, there is a, there's a presupposition. And the presupposition is this, the world is weary. Right? The weary world rejoices. The presupposition is we live in a weary world. Romans chapter 8 would tell us that, that literally the earth itself is groaning under the weight of sin. Right? The earth is weary, literally. And, and as, we, as we think about the world in which we live, this presupposition, this, this thesis that the, that the world is weary, we, think only, we only have to think back over the last three years. And we think about pandemics and riots and just disharmony politically and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just external, not counting what's, what's going on in our own lives. The world is weary. The world was weary at the time where Paul read in Luke chapter 2 when the angels appeared and, and brought good news of great joy to those shepherds uh, that were in a field outside of Bethlehem. Over the last 50 years, the world is weary, Vietnam, 9-11, Gulf Wars, over the last century, two world wars, right? The Cold War. The world is definitely weary. And when we bring it down to a personal level, according to the National Institutes of Health in 2015, a little over 7% of adults, adults over 20, were diagnosed with depression. That number from 2015 to 2020 increased by 30%. That's a lot. Little under 10% of the U.S. population, adult population, was diagnosed with depression. So I think it's not a big leap to assume that this title, this thesis for our Advent season is real. The weary world, the world is weary. But praise God, the world, we have reason to rejoice. And that brings us to, to our to our topic for the day, joy. Now, joy is an amazing subject. It's an amazing subject. It's a huge topic. It's like trying to boil the ocean, right? And I can't look over here right now because there's a person named Joy sitting in the fourth row, and, and, I, uh, and I love Joy. And, uh, and so Joy is always only about praying about grace, thanking God for His grace. And she's like, hey, let's get some joy in there too, right? So, 
Today is about joy, and specifically, though, we're going to take one aspect of joy, and that is the joy of being saved. We could have taken any number of aspects, but the text in Luke chapter 2 that Paul just read is specifically about the joy of being saved, God sending a Savior, right? So we're going to focus on the joy of being saved. We are going to flip through a lot of Scripture over the next few minutes. So get a Bible out. Uh, you're going to want to look at the Luke chapter 2. That's on your pew Bible on, on uh, page 805. Uh, but we're going to flip quite a bit through Scripture. The joy of being saved. The Bible from, from Genesis through Revelation presents us with a range of contrast, with metaphors for the human condition. And, and you look here on the left side. We're, we're presented as, as living under a shroud. Right? What does a shroud do? A shroud covers. Right? Living under a shroud as people living in a desert, as, as people who are chronically thirsty for something, as, as living in darkness, as Jordan showed us last week from Romans chapter 5, from literally being enemies of God and God being our enemy, living in a, in a condition of being an enemy. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it very clear that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, right? The metaphor of what's our condition, our condition is being spiritually dead. We then move on to being condemned. We think about the Bible presenting us with this, 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 this narrative on our condition as being people who are condemned, who are living under some sort of sentence, and as people who are suffering, right? The weary world. And, but the beautiful part of Scripture is that the Bible gives us contrast. It gives us, it offsets this weariness with a promise, with a promise that is found in, in Christ. Instead of living under a, shout, a shroud, we live under, under clear skies. Instead of being stuck in a desert, we're in a land that's blooming with flowers. Instead of, instead of being chronically thirsty, we, we can be in a state in Christ. Of, of unlimited water that gives us life. Instead of living in darkness, we can be in light. Instead of being enemies of God and God being our enemy, as Jordan showed us last week, we can be at peace with God and God being at peace with us, right? What a beautiful picture. Instead of being dead, we can be alive. Instead of being condemned, we can be found righteous, right? Right, not under this penalty of condemnation anymore. And... As we think about the weariness of the world, we can <clears throat> move from people living in suffering to people living in great joy. Instead of suffering, living in joy. So it is in that context that we're going to, to look at this, uh, principally this, this, these verses in Luke chapter 2. If you are taking notes today, uh, we'll break this down into, into four parts. Number one, the promise of light while living in darkness. Yes. The left side of the screen, darkness, 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 right? Weariness, but there's a promise of light. The joy of new, old good news about a Savior. As Paul just read again in Luke chapter 2, good news of great joy. But this news had a lot of signals for a lot of years that this, news, this good news was coming to fruition, right? The shepherds weren't just getting this like, oh, wow, that's interesting. There was, there was a lot of information from God about this good news that was coming. 
Thirdly, we're going to talk about the joy of salvation that changes people even when our circumstances don't change. Even when our circumstances don't change. And then finally, we're going to end by looking at the the certainty of salvation and eternal joy. Living in a state of eternal joy that is absolutely certain, unshakable, and unmovable. The promise of light while living in darkness. We'll look at the beginning of Luke chapter 2 here in just a minute. But, but the message that was brought to those shepherds was a message of, of, of light while they were living in a very dark world. And we're going to look at that, uh, that dark world here in just, just a moment. But I want to bring it back to us personally right now. I want you to think about, and some of you are thinking right now, wow, this is a really joyful message, right? Your worst day of your life. Your worst day of your life. A few years ago, I received news that was unimaginably bad. It was my worst nightmare, bad news. I wept like I had never wept. As a matter of fact, I don't even know in life if I've ever really cried since I was a kid. I wept like I had never wept, and not just once. I wept for days, weeks, occasionally still even overcome. I literally envisioned how great it would be to die and to go be with the Lord, to escape this pain. Literally thought about that. What If I could just go right now, I'd be okay with that. I knew this pain was going to be forever. I knew as long as I was alive on this earth, this pain was going to be there. And this pain brought with it a weariness, okay, That's going to be like a shroud, something just kind of hanging there for the rest of my life. Okay? I want to flip the switch a bit and ask you to think about your worst day. Your worst day. We all have one. Your worst day. Perhaps it's a day that that, uh, you lost a spouse or you lost a child. Uh, You lost a parent to death. Marriage failed. Could be a, a day where we have folks in our, in our church body who've seen their children go to prison. We have folks in our church body who themselves have gone to prison. Imagine your worst day. Maybe it's a day when you saw your child just absolutely blow up their life. The child that you raised knowing Scripture in church teaching them the Word of God, and they just lit a torch to it and blew up their life, right? Worst day kind of pain. That worst day feeling can kind of feel like living in a desert, like a curse. It's just kind of hanging over you, okay? Our shepherds that we look at in Luke chapter 2, they were living in the context of a, a worst day kind of, kind of world, right? There was, a, there was a cloud hanging over them, right? These these shepherds were living in the darkness, as Luke chapter 2 tells us, of those days. In those days. What were those days? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
So Joseph went up from the town of Bethlehem in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. What were those days? If you were a Jew, the shepherds were, were Jewish shepherds. What were those days? If you're from the northern ten tribes of Israel, those were 700 years of days living under oppression. Since, since, you had been over, since your nation had been overthrown. If you're from the southern kingdom of Judah, you'd have 550 years, roughly, of oppression. The Assyrians, not nice guys, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the, the Romans, taking the people of God captive. 500 to 700 years of the world looking at you and saying, you people had it all. You were the wealthiest, most powerful nation, blessed by God, and you blew it. You turned your back on God. And now you've lived in centuries of suffering. Those days, those are the days that are being described in Luke chapter 2. However, those days are presented, those days of living in darkness are also presented, though, in the context of promise. Yeah, they were rough. Yeah, they were bad. But, but those shepherds that got the message of Luke chapter 2, they were living their lives in the context of a promise. I believe these guys had to have understood at some level the promises God had made in the Old Testament to his people. In Isaiah 35, okay, we look at this and we say, what is that promise? The promise there that God himself will come, if you look at the end of the verse, will come and save his people. Yes, I'm under Roman rule. Yes, this guy, Caesar Augustus, has called himself God. Yes, it stinks. And oh, by the way, I'm a shepherd and my job's not that great and I'm out in the field and there's wolves and bad animals and nobody really, you know, gives me the time of day. In those days... They're living under the promise that God himself is coming to save his people. They're living under the promise that God himself was going to ransom his people. God himself said he was going to pay the price for his people's sin and disobedience and ransom them from their bad situation. God himself was going to come and ransom his people. And oh, by the way, when he does, sorrow and sighing, the burden, the weariness of life, the weariness would flee away. God was going to come save his people. He himself was going to pay the price. He himself was going to take away sorrow and weariness. And finally, in Isaiah 25, we see there that, that the, the promise was the best of all. He will swallow up death forever. God was going to literally, God had made a promise, I'm going to literally do away with death. Think about death today. The whole world knows that death is not right. Death is not good. People make up all types of scenarios to try to deal with death. Right? From, hey, we just blow up and go away. Yep, annihilism, I don't exist, nothing, there's just nothingness, right? 
More, more often than not, though, people understand there is something after we, we die on this planet. You go to funerals. Well, Aunt Betty's an angel now. No, she's not. No, Bible doesn't say that. There are angels. Angels came in Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at angels. But Aunt Betty is not an angel. She didn't die and become an angel. Well, Uncle Bob, he's, he's out playing golf. He's playing his favorite golf course. No, he's not. No, he's not. Right? We, we know that this death thing is serious and it's real. And, and people try to rationalize their way around getting rid of the sting of death. The promise of Isaiah chapter 25, God to his people in the future, there's a day when I'm going to literally eliminate death. What an awesome promise. So these shepherds who are li living in the weariness of those days, who are going to be the recipients of God's, of God's message that the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ is here, they were not just living in weariness, they're also living in the context of a promise. A lot of promises that God had made to his people. So in the second point, again, if you're taking notes, the second point, we're going to look now, we're switched to the joy of old good news about a Savior. Why do I say old good news? These verses in Isaiah that we just read, they were written 700 years before Christ was born. If you look throughout the entire Old Testament and the minor prophets and Micah, it's like, hey, here's the address of where the Savior is going to be born. He's going to be born right here. Shepherds knew about that, probably, if they're Jewish, Jewish guys. Probably knew something about that. Certainly, there were people that did know about it because King Herod was all worried about, about you know, who this baby was that everybody was all excited about. And they said, oh, it's, it's the Messiah, it's the Savior, it's the Christ. You know, the Old Testament said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. All right, Shepherd or, or Herod was so, con so convinced about all of that that he's like, well, I'm going to stop this. I'll just kill all the baby boys who were born within a two-year period. He understood it. This was not, this message of good news not delivered in a, in a vacuum. It wasn't the first time that this was being, being shared. Let's look at chapter, uh, Luke chapter 2. Verses 10 through 14 are on the screen. Good news, for fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This message that the angels were bringing, it was delivered to some Jewish shepherds in the field. But clearly, this message was for all people. Does it mean that this message of a Savior is the benefits of that Savior are going to be applied to everybody who ever lives? No. But what it does mean is, this is not just good news for Jewish people. This is also good news for Gentiles. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, as God was promising Abraham, he was going to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. That was a message for Jewish people, yes, but not just for Jewish people. Throughout Isaiah, throughout the book of Isaiah, you see this promise of God's future blessing for the Jews, but also for the Gentile people. The angels are simply sharing good news, but it's, but it's somewhat old news. It was promised, right? 
So, good news about a Savior. What is it about this Savior? What are the characteristics of this Savior that are being, that are being promised here, or that the angels are actually announcing is here? All right? He's the Messiah you've been waiting for, shepherds, Jewish shepherds. He's your Savior. He is Christ the Lord. He is the Lord God. He is actually God. This Savior that, that is here now is actually God himself. Remember those verses of Isaiah 35? God is going to come and save his people. This baby, this, this, this child is actually God your Savior. And you know what? If you look at the bottom, shepherds, he is, he is bringing peace to those with whom he is pleased, those with whom God is pleased. Is this Messiah, this Savior, Christ the Lord, is he bringing peace for every person? Is it a universal peace? No. No. It is peace for those with whom God is pleased. And oh, by the way, shepherds, he himself, this Savior, himself is the way in which God becomes pleased with you. All right, there is centuries worth of promise packed into these four verses. The message that these angels are delivering, this angel is delivering to these Jewish shepherds. Millenn centuries of promise delivered in four verses. So we think about a Savior. If I have a Savior, by implication, I need to be saved. What does a Savior do? Savior saves, right? What does a virus do? People that work in the medical field, viruses are going to virus. That's kind of a, a common statement, right? Viruses do virus stuff. A Savior saves, right? If you think about saving, then if I'm being saved, I'm being saved from something, from a current state, into something or into a new state. A few years back, uh, I was in British Columbia, and, and we were going rafting in this, in this glacier-fed river. And the guide, this 17-year-old expert in, uh, in, in the human anatomy, was explaining that my body would be fine if I went into the glacier water in this special wetsuit, okay? So the 17-year-old river expert who understood all aspects of human anatomy and thermodynamics. Uh, so I took his word for it. He looked like an expert, looked like somebody I could trust. But then he says, hey, you know, you need to jump into this river just to kind of get the feel for it in case you get bounced out. I learned one thing when I jumped in that river. I am not coming out of this boat again. I went in the river and immediately it's like, I cannot breathe. Okay. Literally could not breathe, couldn't move, and at the time, thankfully, my son Austin, who's over here somewhere, uh, my son Austin, uh, who fortunately could, could bench press a house at that, at that point in life, reached over and just grabbed me and pulls me out of the water. I needed a savior, because I was not coming out of the water on my own. I was just going to sit there and die, right? I needed to be saved from that, that glacier-fed river into that perfectly warm, cozy raft, right? Into the boat. I needed to be saved from something 
into something. That's what a Savior does. A Savior saves you from something into something. Now, we're going to look at this saving aspect of, of Christ from two. From something. We are being saved from something, and we are being saved to or into something. We're going to look at two verses, and we're going to look at Jesus' actual words. Matthew 25. In the first service, this, first service, this was also known as Matthew 26, but now it's Matthew 25. So, Matthew 25, Jesus, Jesus is speaking here, and he's teaching, and he's saying, there are two groups of people. All right, he's talking about the kingdom of God of which he is the king. And he's saying there are two groups of people, and, and he uses the words here, blessed people and cursed people. Blessed and cursed. Blessed by the king or cursed by the king. Blessed by the king, cursed by the king. Jesus used similar language when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Right? John 3.16, we love that. For God so loved the world, right? Gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's great. It's awesome. 17 and 18 explained why it's even better. Because he's saying people who are already condemned are being saved into eternal life. Condemned people, dead people, are being saved into eternal life. Here Jesus is saying that what is it we are being saved from? The from part of this. Start at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What are we being saved from? If we are in Christ, if, if Christ our Savior has saved us, we are being saved from an eternity of punishment that is, that is expressed in terms of like being on fire for eternity. Okay? I'm not making this up. I'm using Jesus' actual words here. We are being saved from an eternity of unimaginable punishment for rejecting God, for rejecting the King. But Christ also says here we are being saved into a kingdom, right? The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. God has created a kingdom for His people from the time the world was created for his people to live with him in his kingdom. So we've got a contrast here. I've got a contrast of eternity of punishment and pain in, if, in fire. The, the best we can imagine is being on fire for eternity. Or being saved into the kingdom of God. Being God's children. Being in relationship with God. Being in the state of relationship with the king of the world. The king of the world, right? From and to, in this case. Tim Keller, who is not known for, you know, over-the-top statements. He's a gentle, compassionate, caring pastor, retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Somebody asked Tim Keller about this, this eternal fire thing. Keller said, when people ask me if hell is actually a burning lake of fire and sulfur, I say to them, no. 
it's much worse. Those are just the only words we have to describe something that's just unimaginably horrible. I'm saved from, in Christ, from this eternal state that is best described in Scripture using the metaphor of fire, right? The beautiful part, though, is I'm also saved in two, using Jesus' words, I'm saved to this eternal reality of living with Christ, right? Jesus said uh, his, first, his first message that he ever preached, Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about what does it mean to be in the kingdom of heaven and, and throughout Scripture that's kind of interchangeable, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. The Jewish leaders asked him in, in Luke chapter 17, what is this kingdom of heaven? Where is it? Like, where is it located? What's the address? We're going to go there on vacation, right? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in me. I'm the kingdom of God. Living in me puts you in the kingdom of God. And, and the, the joy of being in the kingdom of God, if we, if we look at the, the benefits here that are being presented of being in the kingdom of God, Okay? You are, you're going to be comforted. You're going to inherit the earth. Right? You're going to be satisfied. Think of the struggle that people have of just trying to get satisfied. Maybe this trip's going to be it. No, maybe if I have this, this article of clothing, that's going to be it. Maybe if I have this car, preferably one with 600 horsepower or more. Right? If I have this car, that's going to be it. That's going to satisfy me. Right? Think of just the churning and the struggling we have to be satisfied. In the kingdom of God, we'll be satisfied. We'll receive mercy. We don't receive punishment. We receive mercy from God in this kingdom, in God's kingdom. And we actually get to see God. If we're in Christ, when we open the words of Scripture, we see God. When we pray, we're with God. We see God. In the future state, we will see God physically in the same place, right? Kind of cool with the lights. Anyway, we get, we, we get to see God. I think of my friend. I visited my friend this week. And my friend just got out of prison seven weeks ago. And he wrote a piece because he became a believer in prison. He came to Christ in prison. He was saved in prison. And the joy of him being saved was expressed in this, in this paper he wrote called Transformed. He was transformed from something into something very different, into a new creation in Christ. He literally was, was expressing the joy of having received mercy and comfort from God and being knowing that he is in the kingdom of God, right? It, it's transformative uh, to be there. So we, so we see this being saved from something to something. When we have a Savior who saves us, we get saved from something into a different state. Thirdly, though, if we go back and, and look at the shepherds, I want you to see the joy of salvation changes people, even when their circumstances don't change. The joy of salvation, the joy of being saved by the Savior, changes people even when circumstances don't. The joy of salvation immediately changes us. If you look at the shepherds, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem. See this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. 
So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Look at the shepherds, the joy of their salvation, the joy of the message of salvation. What did they do? Let's go. Let's see. Let's hurry and get there. All right. They wanted to go and see the Christ. There's an implication there that they believed that the Christ was actually here, right? There's faith in that let's go. There's a lot of faith expressed in the let's go, let's see, and let's get there in a hurry. If you think about, let's think about ourselves in a minute. The joy of our salvation, if we are saved, if we are in Christ, how does the joy of our salvation affect us? Where we go. The shepherds are saying, hey, let's go to Bethlehem. Angel said, baby's in Bethlehem, the Christ is here, the Savior's in Bethlehem, let's go. How does the joy of our salvation affect where we go? Where we think about going, right? Does it affect? I look forward to every Sunday to come and worship with all of you, right? It's an amazing thing. Let's go. Let's go. Let's see. Let's see. The shepherds, they went to Bethlehem to see the Christ. It is a joy to open Scripture and see God, right? To open Scripture and see God. Let's go. Let's see. And, let's, and the shepherds, are in a hurry. What are we purposeful about? What are we in a hurry about doing as an expression of joy in our salvation? When we roll out of bed in the morning, when we think about things, okay, it's good to go on vacations. I love going on vacations, especially with Debbie, all right? Only with Debbie, actually. Uh, I love going on vacation. <laughs> Correct that. Rewind. Uh, what do we have, because of the joy of our salvation, what is it we are purposeful and in a hurry about doing? What is it? Right? What is it? If we have joy in our salvation, what are we, in a, what are we purposeful about doing? What are we got to go do right now? Right? What are we focused on? If we look at the other side of this, though, the joy of the salvation of these shepherds, it affected others. The joy of our salvation will change others around us. If we are saved, if we're in Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, and we have the joy of our salvation, it's going to affect other people around us. If you look at the shepherds, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. What did the shepherds do? They got this good news of great joy. Their circumstances were still the same. Romans still in charge. They're still shepherds. They didn't move up in the social status. They didn't get a BMW, bigger camel, whatever it is shepherds like to get, right? Nothing about their circumstance changed. Yet they could not wait to go and tell people the good news of Christ about this Savior who was here, about this Savior that God had been promising for centuries and centuries to His people. This Savior is here. But also, I want you to see that, that they were spreading the word about Christ in a way that was amazing to the people around them. Shepherds, 
These are not the geniuses of the Jewish people, right? They're, they're, they're not well-educated. They're not cream of the crop. They're not on the social circle. They're not, they're not whatever. What does it say? They, they, people were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The joy of their salvation, the expression of their joy that Christ is here, amazed people around them. We see this in other parts of Scripture. In Acts chapter 4, the apostle Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, Peter was in Jerusalem after Pentecost. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching about Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, Christ ascended into heaven, Christ the Savior. He's preaching. He's healing a guy by the power of the Holy Spirit who couldn't walk, who now could walk. All right, the Jewish leaders, what was their response? They were hacked off. They were not happy. They were going to throw him in jail. They're going to beat him. Like, we've got to get this guy to shut up. But the, but the Jewish leaders in, in Acts chapter 4 said something, the Pharisees. They said, they were amazed that Peter, an uneducated man, was speaking with such authority, with such clarity, with such power about the things of God. The educated theologians, they didn't get it. But like, here's this uneducated guy talking on about Jesus and about the kingdom of God and about salvation in Christ, <clears throat> and they were amazed. They were amazed. How can this uneducated guy be sitting here spewing, talking about so much wisdom? How can that happen? It was amazing. For those of us, you think about people in this room or people you know who went from addiction or a life of just debauchery and, or, or whatever it may be, and they were saved. They were saved. They had Christ. And immediately, immediately, you see it throughout the book of Mark. Go read the book of Gospel of Mark. Immediately, 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 immediately. People who are saved immediately have a change. And immediate, the immediacy of that change amazes others around them. It amazes other people around them. We see that with the shepherds. So I would ask a question. Who's amazed by the joy of your salvation? Who's amazed? Is anybody amazed? Were they amazed at one time and maybe not as amazed anymore? Right? Right? The joy of our salvation has an immediate effect and in changing us, but also an effect in changing those around us. Guys, give me a click back there. There we go. All right, so number four. I want to look at the final point as we wrap this up. And that is living in the certainty of salvation and the certainty of eternal joy. Eternal joy. Joy that's not for a minute, for a week, for an hour, whatever, but eternal joy. Imagine the contrast to a weary world is a state of eternal joy. Right? And so I want to look at that, specifically the joy of certainty in Christ's kingdom, the joy of knowing your biggest problem is conquered, and the joy of receiving God's eternal comfort. If we look at Revelation 21, he who's seated on the throne, he who is seated on the throne, we're getting a, the, the Apostle John is getting a current glimpse into the future, right? 
He who's sitting on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The certainty. Christ, Jesus was saying to John, it is done. This salvation that I have come to bring, this, this ushering of my people into the kingdom of God, it is done. It is unshakable. It is unmovable. Nothing at all can stop this. It is done. You can have the joy of certainty in knowing that, that if you are in me, that my kingdom and the fulfillment of everything that I have promised, it's done. It's done. It is a present reality of a future promise. I also want to encourage you to take joy in receiving, take joy in knowing that our biggest problem is conquered. What's our biggest problem? We talked about it earlier. Sin and death. Romans 3, wages of sin is death. The scripture always shows us the sin, the consequence of sin is death. We saw it in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve died, all right? Death was, they weren't going to die, but the consequence of sin is death. Our biggest problem is death. Our biggest problem is death, and we can have joy if we are in Christ of knowing that our biggest problem is conquered, okay? Our biggest problem is conquered. The one who conquers sin and death will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's conquered. It's beaten. The, the, there's an aspect of that, again, of what am I avoiding? The reality of sin and death being conquered if I'm in Christ, I'm avoiding the punishment of sin, which is death. I'm avoiding death. If I drop dead here on this stage right now, I am certain, without a shadow of a doubt, that the promise here is that I go immediately to life with God forever and ever through Christ. My body is going to be, y'all got to figure out what to do with my body, but I'm gone, right? My soul, my spirit is gone. And, and what a beautiful thing that is. Like, death, like, has no hold on me whatsoever, to conquer death, to conquer death. But the other side of it is, we look at the bottom. Some of us have family members that we care deeply about, friends that we love. All right, verse 8 is a scary reality. But it's for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. We all fit into one of those categories at least. Their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I have great joy that I've conquered death in Jesus Christ, that I will not face death. I will not die. I will not experience the pain of death. But it burdens my soul that I have people I love dearly who are sitting in verse 8. They're sitting in verse 8. But I have joy in knowing that the, that, that the Christ who saved me has the power to save them. I don't have the power. But the God who saved me through Christ has the power to save them as well. My joy in my own salvation, I also have joy in knowing that I have a God who can save those with whom I'm most concerned about. 
that are sitting in verse 8. Joy of knowing that. I'm glad it's not dependent upon me. Finally, I want us to take joy, if we are in Christ, take joy in receiving God's eternal comfort. If we look at, if we look at these verses, there is joy in knowing my future. A future with no death, a future with no tears, a future with no mourning, no crying, no pain. The things that cause me pain will literally pass away. That worst day of my life that I talked about, that worst day feeling of your life will literally be erased for all of eternity. All of eternity, gone. The joy of receiving God's eternal comfort. We're going to be with God. The dwelling place of God is with man. For the, if we are in Christ, what a beautiful, beautiful, comforting thought of being with God, with no death, with no suffering, with no mourning, without even any memory of those, of those horrible things. Gone. All gone. It is a joy, indeed, to be saved, to be certain in Christ's kingdom. It is a joy to know that our biggest problem is conquered, done, defeated, conquered. And if we're in Christ, that we are going to be the recipients of God's eternal comfort. What a joy that is to be saved. I'm going to pray, and, and there are probably two groups of people in the room. If you are in Christ, if you know the joy of this salvation... Celebrate it while we pray. Celebrate with me the joy of your salvation while we pray. If you do not know Christ, if you're not in Christ, if you're not certain of your status with Christ, pray that God, God show me this, right? After, after I finish, after we finish today, I'll be up here. Come talk to me. Come find me, right? Talk about it now, all right? It's a good thing. It is a joy indeed to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, uh, that you have taken people like me from being condemned to being righteous before you, from being dead to being alive. Lord, from, from suffering under the weight of sin and the certainty of, of death to being, to being a recipient of the joy of knowing that, uh, that I am in your kingdom now because of Jesus Christ. I'm in your kingdom forever by your grace. I am, God, the recipient, the heir of, uh, of all that you have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for the joy of that salvation. Thank you that, uh, as the verse we just looked at, it says, uh, it's, it's a living water that we cannot purchase. I've got no way to buy this salvation. I've got no way to buy this joy. But, Lord, you have, through Christ, by your grace, by your mercy, God, you have given it to us freely. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that uh, today that you will remind some of us of the joy that we have that we may have forgotten because of our circumstances. And I pray today, God, that you would bring this joy of salvation to, uh, to someone uh, either in this room or to those who will share the sermon with, the message with, uh, God, that you would bring that to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.